There we go. <laughs> okay. All right. Good evening. It's good to be uh, good to be with you here, and uh, I'm looking very much forward to this camp. I just came from uh, uh, Dr. MacArthur's church at a Spanish conference of uh, 2,200 people, and so I'm dressed more for that than I am for uh, camp. But that'll change tomorrow morning. So it's great to great to be with you. If I seem a little discombobulated, it's because I am. But um, hopefully the Lord will, will help. Um, well, my wife and I will look forward to getting to, to know you, uh, converse with you in the coming days. And um, as you know, Joel is in the hospital, and we're, I'm very concerned about that. And I miss him sorely here. We'll, we'll pray for him. And we'll also um, uh, pray for Heidi and the family and uh, others who may have COVID among those you know. Uh, Joel wanted me to bring to you some messages on union with Christ and unity in the church, uh, that type of thing. So I developed a, a set of five messages for you, one tonight two tomorrow and two on the Lord's Day. And tomorrow morning, I'll, I'll chart out that map a little more carefully for you. But I thought tonight we would look at our holiness in relationship to union with Christ. We want to set the foundation for these themes on the importance of union with Christ. And so I want to look at several things with you uh, about that about that union and how it relates to to holiness. So turn with me, if you will, to First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. Let's read verses thirteen through twenty. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy." And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do not know how to be holy in and through anything that we can offer up to Thee. 
But we need thee. We need union with thy Son. And we need thy Son, by thy Spirit, to teach us what holiness is in the experiential sense of the word. And we need thy Holy Spirit to work holiness in our hearts out of that union with Christ. So out of union, we may experience communion with thee. And from that communion may be made holy, even as thou art holy. And Lord, we do long for that day when we will be perfectly holy as true believers with the Lamb of God in glory, so holy that he will see no sin in his Jacob and no transgression in his Israel. Lord, we long for the day when we will be sin-free in Emmanuel's land. So please use the addresses this weekend. And we do thank thee for being able to be here all together to promote a genuine holiness, a growth in holiness in our lives that reflects a genuine union with Christ so that our justification in him may produce growing sanctification in him and that we may more and more be conformed to the image of thy Son. We pray that as a result of this camp, we may be more like Jesus. So bless us now, and do bless the weavers. We thank thee for them, Lord, and we love them in Christ. And we pray earnestly for our dear brother Joel, that thou wouldst deliver him from this uh, deep way and break, bring him to a breakthrough with the COVID and that the pneumonia may dissipate, and that he would be able soon to return home from the hospital and come out of this long tunnel, this long saga with COVID, and that both he and Heidi and the family would all be well, and that thou wouldst restore him to this flock in tenderness and mercy. Lord, bless us this weekend. And bless each message, bless the activities, bless the, uh, the young people that are with us, the teenagers, but also the older friends who are perhaps already in the 30s or so, and uh, those in between. And grant that thy word may be suitable for each age group and relate to all of our lives. And do be with any here, Lord, who do not know thee. Please work savingly in their hearts at this camp. Have mercy upon us and help me in speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. A godly farmer who plows his field, sows seed, fertilizes, and cultivates is acutely aware in the final analysis that he's dependent on forces outside of himself for a healthy crop. He knows he can't cause the seed to germinate or the rain to fall or the sun to shine. But he pursues his task with diligence anyway, doesn't he? Looking to God for blessing and knowing if he does not fertilize and cultivate the sown seed, his crop 
at best, will be meager. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I learned these things from my first church, Sioux Center, Iowa, which had 700 farmers. And uh, within two weeks, I found myself buying a rain gauge and putting it out of my fence because I noticed right away when people said hello to me, they didn't say the way we say hello to each other in Michigan. How are you doing? They just said, hello, I got a quarter inch and I got a quarter inch, what'd you get? So, well, I had to get a rain gauge, and I had to go out and look, see how much rain I got, if I'm going to relate to farmers. But what I didn't appreciate at the time was, or before I came, how complex, how dependent farmers are on the Lord in every aspect of their their work. And it seems like at some point during the year, they feel helpless. And they become pessimistic and they say, well, we're not going to get a crop this year. We have to live off of last year's crop. They're always living off of last year's crop because things look grim and they know they can't make ends meet themselves. And you see, it's a bit like that in our battle for holiness. We, we know that the Christian life is like a farmer or like a garden that must be cultivated to produce fruits of holy living unto God. We know that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. We know that Paul says in Thessalonians, God hath not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. And so we use the means, we use the spiritual disciplines, as we'll hear tonight. But yet we know, we know that only the Lord, by His grace, can make us holy as He is holy, even as He says to us, be holy as I am holy. And so, Scripture, when it presents us with a call to holiness, does so in its essence primarily in relationship to God. God, after all, is holiness par excellence. His holiness is the very essence of His being. His holiness is the backdrop of everything else the Bible declares about God. In fact, no other attribute of God is celebrated before the throne of heaven, as is holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6. God's holiness denotes three critical truths about himself. First, it denotes the separateness of God. There's no one holy like God. God is separate from all his creation. He's unique. There's no one like unto me, he says. I was privileged to to pursue my PhD studies at Westminster Seminary, and um, Cornelius Van Til, a very famous professor there, one of his favorite charts to draw on the board was he'd draw a line across the board. He began many of his lectures this way. He put the word creator over it, and he put the word creature beneath it. He said there's a line of separation. The creature is never the creator. There's only one God and only one holy God. And yet, you see, that God of separateness, because no one is like him, is also a God who 
is separate from all sin. That's the second thing that holiness means about God. He's unapproachable by sinners apart from holy sacrifice. The only way to approach God is through holy sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And that brings me to the third thing, that God in His holiness is a God who desires communion with the crown of His creation. And through bloody sacrifice, the bloody sacrifice of His own Son, holiness also implies intimacy. Intimacy. Because you see, though God is a God of separateness, and though He's a God of pure holiness, unapproachable apart from holy sacrifice. He's a God who's found reasons out of himself through the holy sacrifice of his son to desire holy intimacy with those whom he's chosen from all eternity. And that is amazing that God would want to commune with the likes of us. But of course, God can only commune with what he makes holy. And so the goal in our lives is not only to be saved and justified, but also to be sanctified so that when we arise from the dead one day and meet Christ in the air, we will be holy as he is holy and be fit for the heavenly inheritance. And so... We need to understand, first of all, then, biblically, that the word holy means as a reflection of this God, even though he's unique, as a reflection of this God, that we are also to be a separate people, separated from sin. And we are also to be a dedicated people, dedicated to God. And that, therefore, the call to holiness is a comprehensive call in our entire lives. As, as, as John Kelvin said, our entire lives is a call to true piety, true holiness, the fear of God. The call to holiness is a whole life commitment to live Godward, to be set apart to the Lordship of Christ. And without that kind of holiness... The writer to Hebrews warns us, no man shall see the Lord. Now, the question then arises, do the scriptures tell us the source and the means by which we can be holy as God is holy? Quoting 1 Peter 1, 15, 16. And the answer, of course, is yes. The Bible reveals that it's not only by means of gracious faith union with Christ that we can cultivate such a life of devotion to the Lord, but it also tells us that our holiness is always in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ. So with that as our introductory backdrop, (coughs) I want to look at four things with you tonight. First, how do we understand union with Christ? That's point one. Second, 
What is the relation between union with Christ and holiness? And third, how do we cultivate holiness through union with Christ? And then I want to conclude with some motivations to holiness in Christ. So the title of this talk is Christ Our Holiness, colon, Union with Christ and Our Sanctification. So point one, understanding union with Christ. Now, sadly, reality is that when you talk to many believers, even believers of Reformed persuasion, and you say to them, what is union with Christ? It's amazing how many do not know what it is. And what I find depressing is that many Christians today confess, not only do I not know what it is, but I'm afraid, as far as I can remember, I've never heard a sermon about it. Well, this is astonishing. Union with Christ is foundational for the entire Christian life. It's baffling when we consider Paul's letter, for, for example, to the Ephesians, where he speaks about union with being in Christ or believing into Christ scores of times as foundational, as germane to the Christian life. And Christians not know what it means to be united with Christ. Now, the Bible often uses metaphors or various words, terminologies to describe this union with Christ. And so what I want to do in this first thought, and this will be my longest thought, I want to set forth union with Christ to you in five words. Five words I hope you'll never forget. Number one, we are united, if we're believers, we're united to Christ representatively. That's the first word representatively. Now Christ, the Bible teaches us, is the representative head of his people. Romans 5, 12 to 21. Just as Adam is the representative, the first Adam, of all men by nature. Puritan Thomas Goodwin put it very graphically, very picturesquely, when he said, picture two humongous giants. I mean giants um, a thousand feet tall. Just huge giants. And picture around their waist this huge belt with millions, even billions of little holes in it. And then picture that everyone that's born into this world is born hanging on the belt of the first Adam, hooked to the first Adam. That's how we all come into this world. We all come into this world with the guilt of the first Adam imputed to us, so we're born and conceived in sin. And we all come into this world with the pollution of sin inherited from our parents all the way back to the first Adam. 
Guilt imputed, pollution inherited. So we come with two and a half strikes against us, don't we? We're spiritually dead. And what we need, you see, is the Holy Spirit to enter our lives and to unhook us, said Thomas Goodwin, to unhook us from the belt of the first Adam and to hook us into the belt of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Because it's only as we get hooked into the second Adam that we have union with Christ and are saved. And only out of that can we begin to learn what it means to be holy and to grow in holiness before Christ. So Romans 5.18 says, Through the offense of Adam, that is the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, so that in Adam all die, but through the obedience of another, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, all who are in him shall be made alive. So, the point is this in Scripture, and we need to understand this. It's so, it runs so counter to the West, Western mindset. Every single person is in the first Adam or is in the second Adam. By nature, we're all in the first Adam. By grace, we're in the second Adam. So we all have a representative head. Either Adam is our head or Christ is our head. So no one stands independent on their own. And yet, what do we have in the Western mindset? We're all independent. We're all on our own. We're all individuals. The Bible says we're all in one of two atoms. And what's critical for you to realize, of course, and you know this theologically, but I'm underscoring it for you, is you've got to be in that second atom if it's going to be well for you for time and for eternity. To be united to Christ is not only the safest place possible, it's the only place possible. You must be born again. You must be united with Christ. Christ must be your representative. Now, you can object to that, of course. You can say, but I didn't sin in the first Adam. I don't want to be represented by him. Or, or I, 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 you know, I don't know Jesus Christ personally, experientially, my own soul. So I'm not represented by either one. It's not true. The Bible says it's not true. You're in one or the other. I remember when I was a boy... There was that headlines. United States bombs Libya in our Kalamazoo Gazette. And I came to my dad and said, I'm a citizen of the United States. I didn't bomb Libya. It should have said, Ronald Reagan bombed Libya. But dad said, no, no. Ronald Reagan is the president and he represents America. So it says America bombs Libya. You see, when you're in Christ, what Christ has done represents you. So that all that accrues to Christ, all that Christ has merited, now accrues to you. So that's what you've got to get a hold of. The whole world, including you, lives by the principle of representation. Number two, we are not only united to Christ representatively when we're born again in, in Him, we are united to Christ, yes, 
mystically. Mystically. Now, don't be too afraid of this word. Theologically, mystical refers to spiritual truth that surpasses human comprehension because of the transcendence of its nature and significance. And in that way, I'm not talking about unbiblical mysticism now that's just kind of weird and out of time and space and just operates by mere feeling, but in the sense that it transcends our human comprehension, it is a most appropriate word to designate our union with Christ. Paul says of the oneness of Christ and the church in Ephesians 5.32, this is a great mystery. A great mystery. This mystical union is a truth that notwithstanding its reality defies comprehensive explanation. You can't describe it fully, neither can I. But being in union with Christ is something that goes far beyond enjoying his legal representation of me as my head. And it even goes beyond his constant company. For the Lord Jesus promised to be with us always to the end of the world. And that's wonderful too. But if that uninterrupted companionship were the only level of our association with Christ, it would be wonderful, yes. It would be far beyond what we deserve, yes. But the Scriptures say that there's something even beyond that. When I'm united to Christ, I'm not just experiencing His presence, nor are we somehow appended or attached to Him, but we are actually in Him. And we believe into Him even though we are not Him. How do you explain that? It's a mystery. It's a mystical union. That's why the Reformers and the Puritans often spoke of being united with Christ in vital, mystical union. Vital meaning, it's an old-fashioned word meaning alive. It's a living thing. And mystical meaning it's beyond our comprehension. Thirdly, We are united to Christ, therefore, vitally, vitally. By vital, we simply mean that which is necessary for the existence of real life, real spiritual life in this case, and the continuation of that real spiritual life. To put it bluntly, apart from Christ, spiritual life, real spiritual life does not exist. But in Christ... There is abundant life that your joy may be full. And so Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Vital union. Real reality. Real life in Christ. Now Jesus develops that powerfully in John 15, doesn't he? You know, the, you know the analogy here. There's the vine, and the branches are engrafted into the vine, and so the sap flows from the vine into the branches. And Jesus says, He who abides in me will bear much fruit. He who is a branch that is sort of attached to the vine, but not in the vine, that branch is dead. And that branch is not vitally connected 
It's, well, that branch will just be cut off and cast away into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So what Jesus is saying in John 15, among other things, is that union with Christ involves two important things. It always involves communion. Union will produce communion because you get engrafted. You get detached from the first Adam. You get engrafted into the second Adam. So in John 15, in the illustration about the vine and the branches, the verb to abide, which is a living thing, isn't it? When you abide in something, occurs nine times in verses four through nine. Nine times. You abide, you abide, you abide, you abide in Christ. The word, this word means to remain, to continue, to take up residence. It expresses an intimacy of relationship. So when you're united with Christ and you never have communion with him, I'm not saying you always have felt communion, but you never have felt communion with him, you better question your whole spiritual condition. One of the Puritans, John Preston, said this. He said, uh, if a, a mother expecting a child, and she's far along in her pregnancy, but suddenly for several days she feels no movement inside her, she has every right and reason to be very concerned. Is the child alive? So said John Preston, if you never have communion with Jesus, you have every right and reason to ask yourself, am I spiritually alive? So that's first. Union involves communion. Second, union implies dependence. You see, the branch cannot function or survive apart from the vine. Without me, verse 5, John 15, without me ye can do nothing, Jesus says. So Christ is everything to his people and does everything for his people. So Christ makes it so personal, you see, without me. Christ is everything I need. Without this vital, living union, we die. Fourthly, to be united to Christ is to be united not only representatively, mystically, vitally, but also intimately. And here the Bible uses the picture of husband and wife. When you're in a good marriage as a husband and wife, outside of spiritual life, this is the most special thing in this world. There's an intimacy there that you can't put into words. You share everything, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. It's just inexpressible, isn't it? There's nothing quite like earthly marriage for human intimacy. There's an inseparable connection. The woman becomes... The bone of my bone, said Adam, and the flesh of my flesh. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. They shall be one flesh. And you see in Ephesians 5, Paul says explicitly 
This is a type of the intimacy between Christ and the church. In fact, that intimacy has a dimension that even goes beyond the most intimate marital relationship. And Paul says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Ephesians 5.30, an intensely intimate union. And finally, we are united to Christ eternally. If we're believers, true believers. That means we have an indissoluble union. It means that union with Christ is eternal. And in one sense, we mean by that, not only does it not have an ending, but actually from God's decree, at least an intention, it has no beginning. From eternity past, He's determined that union. Christ, in Christ we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4 says. Now, of course, that has to become reality in my consciousness in time through genuine conversion. But the point is this, you see. The believer is decreed that he will be one day in that consciousness united with Christ. That happens in time, and that will last forever and ever and ever and ever. So union with Christ, I hope you grasp from these five words, is something that is absolutely all-consuming in the believer's life. This is my spiritual life. This is everything. By the grace of God, I'm united with Christ. Well, now much shorter, point two. Where's the connect now between union with Christ and our holiness? Well, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So our covenant-keeping God calls His people into union and communion with His Son through the proclamation of the gospel, and that Son is then made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, holiness, and redemption. Redemption is a summary term for all of salvation here. So now that we've been brought into vital mystical union with Christ, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Spirit of Christ sanctifies us in Christ. So Christ being sent by the Spirit, Christ himself is the source not only of our forgiveness and our justification, but the source of all our holiness. Listen to Thomas Boston in a sermon entitled The Only Way of Sanctification. Boston states his main doctrine this way. God's device for the sanctification of an unholy world is that sinners unite with Christ and derive all their holiness from Him whom the Father has constituted the head of all sanctifying influences. Union with Christ is the only way of sanctification. You see, there you have it. And that's just a summary, really, of Romans 6, isn't it? Paul gives us the doctrine of justification, chapters 4 and 5. Then in Romans 6, he begins to work on the doctrine of sanctification or or holiness. Sanctification is just a big fancy word that means making holy. Some of you have maybe a Dutch background. You know that heiligmaking in Dutch simply is holy making. Holy making. And that's, that's the word for sanctification. If I had my way, I'd change the word sanctification 
in all the theological books and just replace it with holy making. That's easier to understand, but we can't, we can't reinvent words. So holy making, you see, comes out of union with Christ. So Paul says, when you're justified in Romans 6, shall we then continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. No, no. Being justified freely by grace now demands the fruit of purity and holiness in my life. In fact, in fact, Paul says, I'm to reckon myself dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through united union with Him. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said somewhere that Romans 6.11 did more for him in pursuing holiness in his life than any other text in the entire Bible. Because he said, anytime I'm tempted to sin, I say to myself, what? You, a Christian, sin? I've got no business sinning if I'm united with Christ. I've got no business sinning. I'm to be dead to sin. Sin is not my master. Jesus Christ is my master. Sin is not my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I'm not a sinaholic anymore, but I'm madly in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm dead to sin. Sin shall have no more dominion over me, and I'm alive, vital union, unto God in Jesus Christ my Lord. So as Stephen Sharnock put it, the great Puritan who wrote on the attributes of God, he said, every time you sin knowingly, every time you sin knowingly, at that very second, you are acting like a practical atheist. He put it this way, every time you sin knowingly, you are saying, God is not. Because if you, knew, if, God, if you knew God was standing right beside you, watching you, and you loved him and you feared him, you wouldn't sin against him, would you? Banish the thought. And yet God is standing right beside you. God is everywhere. And so what Paul is saying is, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is always here, right now. We had a mother in our church recently who told me this story. She's driving down the highway with her daughter, I don't know, four years old or so, in the back seat. And the daughter's thinking some pretty heavy thoughts. And she says to her mom, she says, Mom, where is God? And the mother says, well, God is everywhere. And the daughter's sucking on a, a lollipop. And uh, thinking, thinking, Three miles down the road. Mom, is God in the car here right now? Uh, yes. Yes. Go down the road further. She takes a lollipop out of her mouth. She holds it up in the air. And she says, God, do you want to lick? <laughs> but you understand the reality of that, you see. If we had what that child had at that very moment all our lifetime, we wouldn't dare to sin, would we? God is right here. God is right here. And you see, that's what happens when you are united with Christ. God becomes so real. As Francis Schaeffer said in his famous book, the God who is always here 
The God who's always there. God is never absent anywhere. And so, as one of my former elders used to say, told me several times actually, he's, he's with the Lord now, but he said, when, when, when I grew up, he said, my dad used to say to us, if you become a Christian, you ain't got no business sinning. You see, you're to hate sin all that is within you. Because sin is anti-God. Sin is spiritual insanity. Sin is trying to dethrone the Lord from His throne. Sin runs from the Lord rather than to Him. Except for the sin of pride. That sin, sin of pride just seems to want to take the place of God on the throne, which is worse yet. So, the point here you see is this close connection between union with Christ and my pursuit of holiness. I'm to die to myself. I'm to die to my own righteousness. I'm to, I'm to live unto God. I'm to live out of the righteousness of Christ. I'm to put off the old man, which no longer has priority in my life. And I'm to put on the new man. That's the point. We're made alive in Christ. And now we have his resurrection power at work in us so that we might walk in a new life of holiness and a new life of devotion to God. That's why I get very scared when Christians say, well, you can't be righteous over much. Or, you know, you, you can't always do what's right. I, I mean, I know this isn't right, but. And they go ahead and do it? Are you serious? You purposely would sin against God? That's antinomianism. Antinomianism is against the law. Anti-nomus law. Against law. Antinomianism says, oh, I'm going to be saved by grace anyway. So if I just sin, I go to God and say, forgive me, Lord. It's all, it's all, it's all good. No, no. God forbid, says Paul. I love that woman sitting in the front row. She's my wife. The thought of hurting her hurts me deeply. It really does, because I love her. You just have a totally different relationship with her than I do with a policeman who stops me for speeding going down the highway. When he hands me the ticket, I don't say to him, oh, Mr. Policeman, I'm so sorry I offended you. Please, please forgive me. It's a very different relationship. When I love the Lord, when I'm in union with Christ, when I have just a little taste of what he's done for me, he suffered for me, he died for me, I want to live for him. And the thought of grieving him just grieves me so much. That's why the Romans 7 struggle is there. You know, oh, the good that I would, I find myself not doing. Oh, God, have mercy, oh, wretched man that I am. The evil that I would not, I find myself doing. Oh, God, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? But there is an answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus Christ is my justification. He's my sanctification. He's my righteousness. He's my holiness. He's everything. He is made of God unto you. Righteousness and sanctification, and wisdom, 
and redemption. Paul says he's all and in all. Now, my third thought. How then do we cultivate this holiness? How do we cultivate this holiness through union with Christ? Well, let me give you five or six words here too. Word number one is faith. I don't need long to explain this, I don't think. You know this well. By grace, we are called to exercise a conscious, constant faith in Jesus. It's by faith worked in our soul by the Holy Spirit that we commune with Christ as our sanctification. It's by faith that we abide in Him as the true vine. It's by faith that we draw from Him the life-giving sap necessary to bear fruit unto God. So just as Christ is the object of justifying faith, He's the object of sanctifying faith. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says in Galatians 2.20. So the world, the devil, and especially our own flesh, are always seeking to cloud our souls with doubts concerning these truths. But we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. See, that's what faith does. Faith is one object, Jesus. And so the way to cultivate holiness is to live by faith. The just shall live by faith, Habakkuk says. The just shall live by faith, Romans 1.17 says. So daily, daily, this is the way we overcome the world. Who overcometh the world? Faith does. John says in 1 John 5, verse 4. So, We are not to despair even when we sin. We are to grieve over our sin. We are to take our sin back to Christ, beg forgiveness. But we are to remember that we are strong in Christ. We are more than conquerors in Christ. We are alive in Christ. We are victorious in Christ. But that's only by faith. By putting all our trust in Him alone. So faith is the big first word. We cultivate holiness by faith in Christ. Second, Scripture. Now, this is probably the most obvious of all. You can't grow in holiness when you're not devoted to the study and meditation of the Scriptures. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may what? Grow thereby. It's so odd that sometimes people come to a minister and they say, you know, I, I struggle so much with my lack of holiness and uh, I, just, I just can't do it. I don't know how to do it. And you say, well, how much time do you spend in a week with the, in the Scriptures? How much time do you spend in serious study of the Scriptures? Oh, yeah, but I, I can't, I, I, I don't do that. Well, you, you tell me you want to grow in holiness, And the Scriptures are the book to help you grow in holiness, and you're not using the book. You're not using the means that God has supplied. Does that make any sense? Actually, I had an elder in my church who's also now in glory, and he called me up one day. I was actually coming out to do a conference in San Francisco, of all places. And uh, I had my bags packed, ready to go, and he called me just before I left for the airport. And he said, I'm in a bad way. I fear I'm a reprobate, and I'm an abomination 
That's his exact word, in the sight of God. And can you come over and help me? I said, well, brother, I can come in three days, but I, I can't come right now. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to leave. I tell you what, I said, spend 30 minutes alone, because he said he wasn't spending time with God. I said, spend 30 minutes alone with God every day. 10 minutes reading the scriptures, 10 minutes meditating on what you've read, and 10 minutes in prayer. He said, I can't do that. It'll be an abomination to God. I said, it'll be a double abomination to God if you don't do it. Well, okay, I'll, I'll try it, Pastor. I'll try it. <laughs> well, I came back three days later, and there was a note on my study chair in, in the seminary. It said, no need to visit with so-and-so. All is well with his soul. He just got back in the Word, you see. So that's, that's the number two big, big word to remember. Scripture. Be in the Scriptures if you want to grow in the grace of God. Three, prayer and work. I'm combining two words here. Prayer and work. You see, God communicates to us through the Bible. We communicate back to Him through prayer. When I was a boy, my my dad, who was an elder in the church for 40-some years, talked to us a lot about the things of God. One of his favorite sayings was, remember, spiritual life is like natural life. All good communication is a two-way street. Have you ever tried to communicate with somebody who didn't say a word back? It's tough. Well, you can't be a solid Christian if you don't communicate back to God. It's not a one-way street. He comes through his word to you. You go back to him through prayer. And so you pray for holiness if you care about holiness. You say with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. You say with Robert Murray McShane, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner on earth can be. But you also work. You also work. Heidelberg Catechism, question 116, points out that prayer and work belong together. They're like two oars, which when they're both utilized, will keep a rowboat moving forward. If you use only one oar, you're going to go in circles. If you do all praying and no working, well, you might as well join a monastery. And you just go in circles. If you do a lot of work for the Lord, you're very evangelistic, you're working hard for the church, great. But you're not praying, you'll just go in circles for your own holiness as well because you're not using the other oar of prayer. Now, Word four is church. Church. God never meant his people to be lone rangers. We must not think of union with Christ or our pursuit of holiness in mere individualistic terms. Perhaps you heard this story of a man who said, you know what, I, didn't, I don't need to go to church. I can just sit here at home. and It's, it's the Bible, God, and me. That's all I need. You, you hear people say that? I sat next to a lady in the plane that said she was a solid, strong Christian, but I never go to church. She's just Bible God in me. I said to her, well, you believe in the Bible? Do you really believe in the Bible? She said, I do. I said, do you believe Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is the inspired word of God? She said, I do. I said, well, I've got a Bible right up there. We're in a plane, right? Right in the compartment up there. If I get that down and I show you where the Bible says that you need to be with the assembly of God's people, 
you will go to church then, right? Because you believe the Bible. She said, that's right. She said, but I've been trained all my life in the Bible. I know the Bible doesn't say that. So I got down in my Bible, showed her Hebrews 10, 23. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. She looks, she goes, oh, I never knew it was in the Bible. I said, oh, no problem. I said, just give me your name and address and I'll, I'll, I'll do the research for you. I'll find you, since you believe the Bible, I'll find you the best Bible-believing church in your area. Now, where do you live? So I got her to the best church and she started, go, she started going to church. One week later, she sent me an email and she said, this is unbelievable. She said, I can't believe I didn't go to church for all the years. I need, I need church. Well, that was a happy result. I've had many failures on the airplane, but that was a happy result. Now, the point is this, you see. You can't make it on your own because God has made you also a social creature. So there's a vertical relationship. That's the priority relationship when we go to church. It is about God and you, but it's also about your fellow believers. And you belong together, you see. For by one spirit, we're baptized into one body, Paul says. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up together into him in all things, which is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working, the measure of every part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Your holiness, yes, it's individual, but it's also a corporate affair. Perhaps you heard the story of a man who said this to his minister. He could just meet on his own with God. And the minister came over to talk to him about it. And the man had a fire in the fireplace with coals going. And uh, the minister walked in, saw the fire, walked right over, took a pair of tongs, took out one coal and put it on the fireplace brick, put the tongs back and sat down. And the guy's looking at him like, what's he doing? And the coal, of course, burned out within one minute. And the minister looked at him and said, do we need to talk? And the guy said, no, I'll be in church. He got the message, you see. The coals together keep the fire going. A coal by itself burns out. You need church. Preaching, word number five. Preaching is the primary means, not only to save sinners, but to keep them saved. To keep them saved. God uses preaching more than anything else. Preaching is the very voice of God. When the minister is preaching the word of God, John Calvin said, it's like there's two preachers to every sermon. And as he preaches, the Holy Spirit takes those words, puts them in puts them like arrows in his bow and shoots them out over the congregation and directs specific words to specific hearts according to that specific heart's need. And so you've got to be under the preached word and you've got to come hungry. You've got to come wanting to grow in holiness as you enter the sanctuary of God. And you've got to listen not only, but then you've got to go out and do the sermon. Do the sermon. Word six, sacraments. God has given two sacraments to strengthen our faith. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're spurs to Christ-likeness and therefore to holiness. 
Now, grace received through the sacraments is not different than grace received through the preached word. But the Puritan Robert Bruce said it this way, while we do not get a better Christ in the sacraments than we do in the word, there are times when we get Christ better. Because Christ comes so close in the sacraments. In the Lord's Supper, for example, he involves all five of our senses, all five of them. We smell the wine, the bread. We touch it. We taste it. We see it. And we hear the word coming to us as we receive it. Calvin says, God condescends so low in the Lord's Supper in order to come beneath us and lift us up to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then Calvin added this. I can't put into words what happens at the Lord's Supper. All I can say is, it's a better experience than explained. But we leave the supper growing in holiness, bonded all the more in our soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, conclusions, motivations to holiness in Christ. Let me be very brief as I conclude. Number one, God has called us to holiness for our good and for his glory. That ought to motivate you. That ought to motivate you. John Flavel, the Puritan, said, What health is to the heart, holiness is to the soul. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said, Holiness makes most for God's honor. And you see, if you love God, you will love holiness because you want to live to the honor and the glory of God. Number two, holiness makes us resemble God and preserves our integrity. Christ is our pattern for holiness. His holy humility, Philippians 2. His holy compassion, Mark 1. His holy forgiveness, Colossians 3. His holy unselfishness, Romans 15. His holy indignation against sin, Matthew 23. His holy prayer, Hebrews 5. And we're told in all these instances, by implication or directly, that we are to be like Him. The more you're like Christ, the more your religion will speak integrity. I don't know about you, but I think, I think the biggest compliment we as Christians can ever get is when someone looks us in the eye and says very seriously, I can see Christ in you. Holiness. That's wonderful. It ought to motivate us. Third, holiness fosters assurance of salvation. Question 86 of the Heidelberg Catechism states, Everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. That's one way of assurance. There's more ways. The foundational ways, the promises of God. But the fruits of our lives can also help us to grow in assurance of faith. Read 1 John. 11 times he says, we know we pass from death to life because, something like that anyway. Because what? Well, one, one mark of grace is because we love the brethren. Do you have a special love for the brethren? Feel special kinship with God's people? That's a fruit of saving faith. And you see, those kinds of marks we can reflect on and grow in assurance. Four, holiness is essential for our effective service to God. Paul joins holiness in usefulness together. 
2 Timothy 2, 21. If a man therefore purge himself, he will be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and fit for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Holiness gives credibility to our witness, to our evangelism. Let that motivate you to cultivate holiness. And number five, finally, holiness fits us for heaven. John Owen said, God leads none to heaven but whom he sanctifies on the earth. None to heaven but whom he sanctifies on the earth. A life void of holiness is a life that will not reach the celestial city. Follow holiness, Hebrews 12, 14 says, without which no man shall see the Lord. Well, perhaps you're asking by this time, and let me close with this thought, who's sufficient for these things? And Paul's ready answer is, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. He does have an answer. Our sufficiency is of God in Christ. And so the end of the day, bottom line, we just go back and back and back again for our holiness in Jesus Christ. Outside of Him, there's no holiness. J.C. Ryle said it so well. Would you be holy? You must begin with Christ. Would you continue holy? You must abide in Christ. John Kelvin, no, it was Augustine, Augustine who put it this way. He said, it is better, it is better to slowly walk in the path of holiness that is in the path of Christ, that Christ is your way, your truth, and your life, than to walk outside of the Christ path. Yes, even to run outside of the Christ path for holiness because you'll never get it outside of Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. So our vital union, our present communion with this crucified, risen Reigning Christ, the person of Christ himself, is the indomitable force behind our victory over sin and our growth in holiness. May God help you and me to lay hold of Christ by faith as our sanctification and be increasingly conformed to his image for his glory. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for this wonderful, wonderful theme of Christ, our holiness. Help us to cultivate holiness out of union with him in Christ himself and to abide in him by spirit work grace and help us to run in the pathway to him, always running the race set before us by setting aside sin and looking to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Give us good rest now tonight and bring us back in the morning for a continuation of this message, these messages and let it feed our souls unto holiness and ultimately to life eternal. In Jesus, we pray with the pardoning of our sins through his blood. Amen.